You're here with us on the Singer Success Path podcast, where we talk about all the things building a career with our voices without having to set foot on a stage. I'm Kamara Morell. John Shield joins us today for an amazing chat about navigating legal matters in the music business world. Among many other things, John is a sync songwriter, a live audio engineer, and an entertainment lawyer. If you want to make money in the music business, you definitely want to listen to this whole episode. Here we go. Okay. Hello, singers. I'm very excited to welcome John Shield Esquire to the show today. John and I met almost almost four years ago now in a sync licensing program. Can you believe it's been that long? So I wanted to know, when did you actually decide to go into entertainment law? And you know what was that story? Why did you even do it? Well, the real story is that I am the son of a lawyer and my father, um, although he didn't practice in a private practice, so to speak, he was more uh, in human resources and in the corporate world. He is the son of a lawyer who was in private practice, who he was the nephew of a lawyer. He's the grandson of a lawyer. Like all these people, there's nine lawyers in my direct male lineage. And I grew up wanting to be a musician. And just totally rejecting that and saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to law school. Although I'll take the LSAT in college just because what am I going to, you know, maybe just in case. case. Yeah. (laughs) So I took it and I got a good score and then I put it on the shelf and I moved it aside and said, okay, look, I'm definitely going to go hard with this music thing. And Mm -hmm. I had started instruments at a very young age. Um, I think in kindergarten and preschool, I was already playing recorder and violin. And then I switched schools and I played saxophone from the third, you know, fourth grade. Uh, Then fifth grade, I picked up the guitar because a friend of mine uh, had a band he was putting together. And it was one of those situations where I showed up with a saxophone and some jerk who was hanging around us at the time said, oh, no, no, no. This is this is like the era of hair bands and poison and motley crew were were you know on mtv and it was like you can't be a sax player and be in the band those guys are backup musicians you need to play guitar keys drums or be a singer and you need to have long hair and just this is the requirement right whatever whatever they're doing on mtv right now is what we have to do so i thought all right well i know music more than you do and i've been doing this longer so i'm gonna go out and get a guitar and if i have to make noise on that well then that's fine I'll, i'll do that yeah. So uh, I was playing music pretty much all my life. I was the guy in the band that was writing the songs, bought the PA, carrying everything to the gig, setting up the gig. I was just always the guy doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And my musician friends were like joining the band and then, oh, well, I'm going to go do something else or I'm going to go hiking this weekend. I can't make the gig. And, and it, it was like always a struggle to yeah. keep everything together. And finally, uh, you know, having a recording studio and having um, produced for other people, I met a bunch of other studios. And one of my studio brethren said, listen, we've been trying to deal with this licensing issue and we want to take music and license it to video. And we called this guy who's in New York City and it just feels like a vacuum is attached to our wallet. And every six minutes, money is flying to Manhattan and we're not really getting what we need. If someone could do that around here at like Midwestern prices, then maybe more music would come to the world. Mm. And that became my mission statement. It was like, bring great art to the world, help bring great art to the world. 
So I said, all right, that sounds like a reasonable thing. I went at night and I, it took me four years to get through it. And I took the Ohio bar and passed right away. And I launched my practice 12 years ago. And that's like exclusively aimed at musicians. That's what that's, I do some criminal law in the morning, but that's mostly because my musicians leave the bar at 3 a.m. and they, it's just them and the cops on the road. And so <laughs> there's a high likelihood that uh, they will get pulled over. So I started doing, you know, OVI work and DUI work uh, really early in my career. And that led to um, DUIs just for musicians. <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of was. Yeah. My first case was literally oh a bass player that was locked up for a DUI situation. And I found him a sub bass player who was someone that I had was talking to about some other musical endeavors. He subbed for him on the gig. That was that night. And then I got him out of jail. And then later I ended up representing the other bass player on an OVI situation. I mean, it was like, you could not have scripted that any differently. Like I got a phone call, Hey, I'm in trouble. Uh, I need your help. And boom, it was like, okay, bass player, bass player, sub, you know, I've covered the gig, covered the bail, the whole, like, Oh my gosh. Just, Talk about going of- with the flow. Like you're just, you're in a band and they're like, we need a lawyer. You're like, okay, I'll find out how to do that. And then someone's like, I need help with this. And you're like, okay, I'll find out how to do that. <laughs> that's that's literally it. I think I charged them like 20 bucks an hour. It was ridiculously yeah. cheap. It was the like total bro, you know, friend rate. And like, I had a mentor, a lawyer mentor of mine say, if you do that again, and this this woman who I highly respect, a senior attorney who's been around for years, um, she said, I will come over there and beat you over the head with the first law book I find if you charge people $20 an hour. She was <laughs> like, you will run yourself out of business and you're just you're just going to grind yourself out. You cannot do that. You have to look at the market. This yeah. is what people say. But you were trying your- something you've never done before. Exactly. So that's totally, I think that's totally fair. It really was. It was like, how can I maximize my skills and talents in the service of my little music community was 30 years old and I was going back to school and I was, I I rented out my house and I actually moved in with my parents. It was just a big, massive period of change in my life, but it gave me a mission and I knew that I had a purpose. That's great. I would actually really love to ask you some general legal questions that might be helpful to our singers listening today. And also this might be a great time to add a fabulous disclaimer that nothing on this podcast may be considered legal advice. (laughs) Always consult an actual attorney for your unique situation. One question I'm sure a lot of us have uh, when going into like demo singing or sync licensing, where we work with so many different clients, when we're charging like $350 $350 for a demo gig, or we're pitching songs with no guarantee that we'll even get paid. How, how do singers navigate receiving like tons of contracts and how on earth are we supposed to sustain this? Do we have to pay a lawyer every time? And, or is it actually not as expensive as we think it is? Well, I would say it's far less expensive to spend a little money on the front end mm-hmm. and have a system and a process in place than deal with it when you've got a big problem. I I can tell you that a quick call to me for free can save you tens of thousands of dollars in this industry. Mm -hmm. I say that pretty frequently 
because I'm a lawyer that works with musicians. I also run sound so that I'm constantly every week, multiple times a week, standing there on a gig with musicians, handing mm. them my card, helping them with their show, helping coach and guide them. And they always have these questions and they really can get a lot of answers out of me pretty, pretty quickly. It's, it's really in the drafting of the contract that you're going to spend the money. Okay. In most times you can have it drafted once and then build a system or a process where you're using e-sign or, or any of the DocuSign type programs. And it's a fill in the blank kind of a deal. You, you can say what your rate is for that particular project, but you know, your legal rights and all of the substantive legal matters are covered in the contract that you can use again and again and again. So mm -hmm. I often draft for a one-time fee of maybe 300 to 450, depending on how complex the deal is. I might be able to knock that out in an hour. And then that person, that client can use it over and over and over again. What are some contracts that you think like a gigging musician should have handy? Well, so a gigging musician automatically I think a performance agreement. And I know that there are a lot of folks out there who say, well, maybe I don't need this for this bar gig, but I will tell you that there's a concept that all law schools teach. It's, you know, every contract, first of all, contract law is based in state law. So your state governs what the wrinkles of contract law of, that affect your situation are. But most of the 50 states are fairly similar with regard to contract concepts. So they're they're pretty much the same thing. And there's a rule that we learn in law school called the statute of frauds. And if the agreement that you've come to between say venue owner and musician is for over $500, then it must be in writing in order to be a valid contract. That's part of the elements of the statute of frauds. The other things are if it lasts for over a year. So if you're in sync licensing and someone's going to sync a song or if it's for a podcast where the music is going to last for a long time or a publishing deal where it's going to last for longer than a year, um, anything that lasts over a year has to be in written form and signed in order to be a valid binding agreement. Hmm. And so when you talk about contracts, you're really just talking about enforceability. And I'm sure that many musicians that are listening to this podcast are thinking, yeah, there was that time where the bar owner said, hey, you didn't bring enough people and I'm not going to pay you. And what is your mechanism then to enforce that agreement and get paid? Yeah. That's where if you had a performance agreement and you just made it a part of your regular practice, then you would say, this is the gig. This is confirming the gig sign here and make it easy for them to just click a button and agree. And then you show up, you get paid. And if they yeah. don't pay you, then you can work things into your agreement, like payment of attorney's fees, which is really critical because a lot of times agreements, sometimes I've seen this in the contracting world where someone might say, I'm going to build you a stage and they quote you a price for building the stage. And then they give you an invoice, but they don't really have any kind of contractual language around that. And then mm -hmm. if the venue owner says, I'm not going to pay you for the stage that you just built. Well, you've got to rely on all these other concepts like promissory estoppel and other legal terms to bring your case to court. Whereas you could have written this in a contract that then guarantees you the right to sue for your attorney's fees as well. And that'll come in handy with contract law. Now, I, I know I'm kind of getting in the weeds here, mm -hmm. but if you cannot guarantee that your lawyer is going to get paid 
and you have to come out of pocket to pay them, you might not actually file that case. You might say it just costs too much. If I have to spend $5,000 to make $4,000, then I'm losing money and this is not really worthwhile. Or if I have to spend $2,500 to sue this bar owner for a $700 gig, I'm just not going to do it. The business deal there, the juice is not worth the squeeze. I'm not going to file a case in court when he just screwed me over. I'll just badmouth him on social media. And then you're frustrated and everyone is angry. But that's not the way to run your business. So gigging musicians, you need performance agreements. You need work for hire agreements. Work for hire. You need production agreements. Basically everything that you do that's an agreement. Yeah, written down. I'm sure as a lawyer, you're probably a little bit biased to this, but have you had the conversation several times about split sheets and whether we should have them or not? Do they kill the vibe and things like that? Oh, yeah. I definitely, I would go one further and I'm a big advocate of a split agreement. So you have the basic split sheet with everybody's name and their information, their IPI number, their social security number, their contact information, that sort of thing on the split sheet part of it. But then there are some things that you want in an agreement that goes with your split sheet. Does everybody get the right to pitch the song or just one person get the right to pitch the song? Mm-hmm. What happens, maybe we the split sheet is just covering the writing and, and the publishing part of it. What happens to the master? Who gets control of the master? And so if you have a full agreement that covers all the legal bases, then you could have what's called a one-stop agreement built into your split sheet. And I advocate that because I want to see more music get made. I want to see this as a part of everybody's process. So once you're in the writing process and you feel like, hey, we're really clicking on all cylinders here, we've got something that we really are going to write and produce. I think that's the time where, where you just make a note. This is what I'm contributing. This is what they're contributing and turn that into a split sheet at some point, when you have a nice break, uh, you're everybody's taking a smoke break or whatever, coffee break or a, whatever it is, uh, just say, hey, you know, here's a proposal for the split sheet and it's an agreement and it just covers all of these terms, you know, one stops and who mm-hmm. gets to pitch and yeah. what happens to the master and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I like having a one stop that everyone has the ability to pitch, but needs to run it by each other, at least inform each other. Like you have the right to do it without my permission, but at least just tell me that you did. Yeah, absolutely. Had a lot of times where I have that agreement and then people are pitching the song and I never knew that they pitched it. <laughs> I'm like, well, and <laughs> to your point there, uh, there are a lot of industries where Folks may not necessarily want to see their personal brand associated with it. Um, I gave up alcohol a few years ago, and not to say that I have anything against alcohol. I mean, if I owned a vineyard, I'd be promoting alcohol all the time, but I don't own a vineyard. And so I would rather not have my songs or my work right now uh, associated with alcohol just in in this period of my life. So I would like to limit that. And so that's a part of something that I would draft for myself as an artist. Now, I don't really actually have that in my split sheet, I, but I can think of other examples like that where uh, that, that could be the case. So do you recommend, I love that you, you kind of mentioned uh, like a hybrid 
way of getting legal advice without necessarily hiring an attorney to negotiate the deal for you. Um, but do you still recommend that artists themselves like put a good amount of effort into understanding their own contracts and reading them themselves? Absolutely. I think that part of this business is knowing the the law that applies to you. So knowing what California law or Tennessee law or Ohio law might say, depending on where you live, you know, I think that having understanding that the contract, the piece of paper that you sign is really just a memorialization of the agreement that you've come to a meeting of the minds with the, the parties and knowing how to enforce it, how to go to court, where to go, what jurisdiction you're dealing with, having a lawyer that you can talk to on a regular basis. I think that all of those things are sort of a requirement to be successful in this industry. And a lot of folks, because budgets are tight and money is not what it once was in the sync industry or in the music industry or anywhere else, they put the law last. And I think that it's a mistake because what a lawyer can do for you is smooth out the road and eliminate very costly mistakes that people make in this business. And I think that if you are to look across the board at everyone who's successful, doesn't matter which genre you, you're a fan of, if you pick the top artist on that genre, you're going to see that they have legal counsel. And it's, it's an essential element of success. Mm -hmm. I will say though that, um, I like as a demo singer, like I work on soundbetter.com and all these sites, like I often get, you know, like electronic DJ artists uh, hire me to sing on their song. And then they use a certain record label to sign just that one song at a time. And so I get so many different contracts sent to me. And one thing I'll say about them is I've definitely seen a simplification of the language. Thank goodness. Like, I feel that the contracts I would see back in 2009 had all these like really intense sentences that you're like, what is even happening? But now it's a lot easier to read these contracts. Um, I just thought this was kind of a funny thing, but like, I wanted to ask what is up with these intense, extreme run-on sentences and confusing legal jargon, like notwithstanding the foregoing and anything here in there of blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I just feel like sentences like that pop up in contracts. And then I'm like, I don't know what this means. Like, are you I, saying I, it is this way or it is that way? Because it sounds like it's flip-flopping. <laughs> I don't know what it means. I laugh because I, I've read so many where you, you just have to read it like four times to understand. <laughs> so this negates that, which... The, it's like a, a suddenly you're dealing with math uh, and, and it's, it looks yeah. like the English language, but it feels like algebra and what's the just, deal. Yeah. So, so this part cancels out this word. <laughs> my intellectual property professor in law school said, Oh, you're going to write contracts for musicians. Listen, use small words and big print. Don't use <laughs> big print or big words and small print. That's the wrong way to go. So do yeah. the opposite. And that, and that, has, that has stuck with me. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. Help your people get out of jail and then they'll be able to pay you and then use small words, big print. So the yeah. trend in, in contract law is to get simpler and it's not to have quite so many whereas clauses and preambles and things that 
that get really wordy. I think that the law, it's built on a history that, you know, our American law comes from British law. And there's just a lot of history that it's slow to change. And there are a lot of older senior lawyers who are now judges. And sometimes you're trying to explain to the judge what it is that the business that you're in is all about. There are so many judges that I would be very reluctant to take a case in front of when it comes to this topic, because I would have to spend more time explaining to them what the business is all about before I even got into the contract terms. Um, that's, that's the struggle. I think that's the balance that the lawyer is trying to strike. I will say that um, the shorter the agreement, the more a lawyer gets nervous because if it's really short, it doesn't cover everything. And then you're thinking, okay, am I leaving my client's backside open for some kind of problem? You know, and all lawyers are trying to do is cover your butt. They're really just trying to help you and cover all contingencies. Totally. What's your opinion on like think agencies that do take 50%, like are 50-50 deals fair or are they only fair in certain situations? How do you feel about that? Well, I will say that it does sting a bit when, you know, as a, as a writer myself, when I see so much of the, the money going to the other party in the deal, but without that party, I would not have gotten my song placed. And I, I, I know that for my first song that, that got a placement, it was a 50, 50 deal. And that I'm specifically thinking of that arrangement. It comes down to leverage. So Mm -hmm. as a new sync songwriter, you don't have a lot of leverage. If you are a successful touring band, you have a ton of leverage. And so I have a, a publishing company that one of my advisors uh, did quite a lot in the seventies with major artists that if I named one or two, you would, you would know they're top tier British artists who many say changed the world. Right. So this, this advisor of mine was telling me, why are you so focused on sync songwriting? And I said, well, that's where the money is right now. And he said, yeah, but if you focus on making the song famous, all those companies will come to you and you'll get far better deals and you'll never have to worry about fighting for 50% or, or he was like, that's, that's backwards. You're going about it backwards. You need to make the song famous and then the sync deals will fall in your lap. And, mm-hmm. and I think that might be a little bit of an older school mentality. I think the industry has changed a little bit. I think we all have to kind of adapt. I'm not sure that's the best advice for everyone, but it did make me think, wow, does you too, or my daughter and I watched a show called The 100. And on the very last episode of like many seasons of music, the very last few minutes of the show, of all the seasons, the epic finale was had a U2 song in it, Bad, which played the entirety of like, like they played the longest version of the song I think I've ever heard. It was like six or seven minutes that just flowed through the entirety of this final scene. And it could not have been cheap. It was undoubtedly the most expensive thing that they spent their money on. And there were, I don't know, maybe a hundred episodes. I mean, it was, and it was chock full yeah. of music. Everybody else got the, you know, the small deal. And I'm sure that when they went to you too, it was because the director was like, no, this is the song. And I'm going to spend my entire budget on that song. 
U2 yeah. isn't fighting for 50-50, but they have leverage. Right. And if you're new to this business, you have no le no leverage. I None. think that, you know, I would say you want to go after both. Work on both at the same time. Work on making your song famous. Work on your artistry. And but also work on getting your stuff into sync because it's just it's it's not so linear like it, they go hand in hand. You could actually place your song maybe for a lower fee because you're not famous yet in a TV show. But then everyone's shazamming it and you go check your song the next day after the show airs and you have like a million views or streams on your song. So it's like it goes both way. And then so if that happens for you. The next song that you play, suddenly you have leverage. So it, it just go for both at the same time is, is what I would say. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I, I think that there is no one pathway to success. I do think, though, that you with the proliferation of sync agencies since the pandemic, we've seen so many more small upstart sync companies, and I'm seeing you know, things like master classes for music supervisors, people who want to become music supervisors. And provided we're not in any kind of strike period where the Screen Actors Guild or anyone else is striking, mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a never ending need for content. So I think that an artist has the ability to shop around. And I would say that that right now, that's your biggest leverage if you don't already have sync placements and you already you don't have a huge artist following or anything like that. I think if you're just getting started shopping around and being willing to talk to a lot of different agencies is probably to your advantage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no, I like how I said, there's no one path to success. Just be open. I love that. I, I have so much more I want to chat with you about, but maybe we can be chatting about it on the music business mentorship podcast with John Shield. I know, and I know you're speaking actually at this conference in January, the music and TV and film conference. Shout out to Sync Music Mondays podcast with Kay Sparks and JS, aka the best. What other exciting stuff do you have going on and where can we catch up with you? Well, so if you want to get in touch with me as a lawyer, jasalegal.com is my website. Uh, you can Google me, John Shield. Keep it real, go with Shield. Um, I'm, I'm everywhere, uh, but I, I write music. So I have a music profile. I have, um, the law firm, uh, that caters almost exclusively to musicians and, and intellectual property creators. And then I have the music business mentorship, which is really a series of courses, coaching, and a podcast, uh, that's really designed to help level people up and bring great art to the world. I want to teach people how to write a business plan. I want them to understand that with an ounce of prevention, there's a pound of cure. I think if you put the work in on the front end, you can have a career that you that you feel very fulfilled in and you can earn a living just by your creative output. And that's really what I want people to understand. I think if you're doing the work consistently, you're doing it every day and you're networking and you're growing, you also need a plan for success. So you need to know what the costs of things are, how to implement the plan, when to put things into place. Some people in California, because of the high cost of limited liability companies, don't form an LLC right away. They do business under a DBA. And so it's knowing the, the how the legal and business strategy works with your artist goals and your, your artist plan. How to put all that together, I think, 
is really what I'm trying to help people do. Amazing. We're such kindred spirits. I, I feel like we have a very similar message and just different perspectives. And it's and it's so cool chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the Singer Success Path podcast. And yes, check out John Shield. He's a big deal. <laughs> okay. Well done. See you, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.